Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Philip Pirazio from Johns Hopkins Medicine talking about management of small renal masses. All right, good. I guess we'll get go ahead and get started. My name is Phil Prazio. I am a urologist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and I was invited tonight to talk to you about one of my favorite topics for the management of small renal masses. I am joined by Meredith Metcalf, who's one of our wonderful urologic oncology fellows, who's going to kind of man the Q&A and, um, and moderate. So if you have questions, I'll try and look at the Q&A as will Meredith. And uh, if you're if we don't get to your questions during the talk, we'll certainly get, get to them afterwards. And then um, my communication information is down at the bottom. You can email, you can um, DM us through, through Twitter or however you'd like. Uh, we'd love to hear from your questions and anything else you may want, may want to talk about. So by way of disclosures, nothing here that will make you wealthy, but I do have some um, important kind of kidney cancer uh, disclosures. I work on guidelines committees for the AUA and the NCCN, did a, a number of research projects that were funded to support that work. I sit on the board of directors of an organization called KC Cure, which is an unfunded uh, position, and uh, wrote an up-to-date chapter on small renal masses. So if we think of our foundation and our building blocks of small renal masses, I'm going to start us with the biology and genetics of small renal masses. I think it gives us a foundation for everything we're doing. We'll talk about the management options and how to make management choices. And then obviously I'm a big proponent of active uh, surveillance. Uh, if you know any of the Hopkins work, and I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more detail about active surveillance and then finish with some topics of intrigue. Now, uh, which really won't have too much detail, but, but some of the things I think are really interesting in small renal masses. So if we break down our objectives, the first is to understand how the biology and the genetics of small renal masses impact our management and outcomes. We'll review the management options. We'll put it in a clinical framework to help us choose management options for small patients with small renal masses. And then we're going to really um, focus a little bit more on the outcomes rationale and clinical protocols surrounding active surveillance. And finally, I hear there's a test coming up. I remember that test very well. So I'm gonna highlight the AUA guidelines for the management of small renal masses. As we go through it, I won't cover every guideline statement, but the ones that, that are very likely to be tested upon. So we're gonna start with a definition. Um, and I think this is a, just a really important way to put this in context. When we're talking about a small renal mass, I'm talking about a solid cortical lesion of the kidney that is suspicious for a clinical T1A renal cell carcinoma less than or equal to four centimeters. We're not talking about cysts. We're not talking about fat-containing lesions or known angiomyolipomas. We're not talking about anything that looks invasive that could be a urothelial cancer or a sarcoma or an infection. So we're really focused on the masses we think are renal cell carcinoma, which is the majority of the population we're gonna see. And just to kind of highlight what we'll do, every once in a while I'll pop up one of these AUA guideline statements and, and where it really, really brings home that point. And the first statement, High-quality, multiphasic, cross-sectional abdominal imaging will help you characterize and clinically stage a renal mass. It'll help you rule out cysts, rule out angiomyolipomas, and put you in this category of solid, small renal masses. So we're going to start with biology and genetics, and the key term here, the buzzword, is heterogeneity. So we know now the vast majority of masses that we see are stage one 
renal cell cancers or, or, or small renal masses confined to the kidney. The stage migration attributed to axial imaging has flattened, and now these are the numbers we've seen over the last decade or so. And when we talk about heterogeneity, what do we mean? Well, there's clinical heterogeneity that is really uh, manifest by genetic heterogeneity of these tumors and biologic heterogeneity, and it gives us different clinical outcomes. I think the first and, and really most important thing to study, and this is one of my favorite um, papers from a few years ago, this was benign renal masses in the US. And you can see for masses less than four centimeters, 20 to 40% of masses less than four centimeters are benign, not cancerous, um, uh, and there's no relation to cancer. And if you include low grade organ confined cancers, cancers that are, have never been proven to kill anyone, you know, 80 to 90% of masses less than four centimeters are benign or of low or very low malignant potential. Interestingly, if you look in, um, this is Mayo Clinic data, 3,000 surgical patients, you see the rates of malignancy and the rates of aggressive pathology really decrease as you start at four centimeters and work your way down, particularly um, um, smaller tumors in women, much more likely to be benign, much less likely to be aggressive cancers. If we look at metastatic rates, we see that the rates of metastatic disease are about 2% for tumors less than four centimeters, but really less than 1% for tumors less than three centimeters. So that's whether you look at institutional surgical data like the Mayo data I just showed you, population-based outcomes data like SEER or the VHL literature. So much so that we even have a three centimeter rule specifically in VHL literature, but it really expands kind of to the sporadic kidney cancer population as well, where you really see very few metastatic kidney cancers in tumors less than three centimeters. If you look in the retrospective active surveillance literature, you see that tumors on average grow slowly. And if you look at the seven patients in the retrospective literature that developed metastatic disease, these started off at roughly three centimeter tumors that doubled in size over the course of two to three years. So these are not the typical masses that we watch or we would recommend watching now. Now it is really important to note that small renal masses with metastatic disease exist. Patients will present with metastatic disease and a small renal mass, but to have a small renal mass that would progress to metastatic disease on surveillance in a tumor that is not growing would be exceedingly rare and almost case reportable. There's genetics and biology that describe this. We know the bad genes in kidney cancer. We know for clear cell kidney cancer, VHL is present in basically all of these cancers. PBRM1, SETD2, BAP1, KDM5C are just some of the bad genes we see in aggressive cancers. And this is an older study, but it really nicely delineates that as you progress from low-grade organ-confined cancers to more aggressive cancers, we pick up more bad genes. There's been a real revolution in the understanding of clear cell, renal cell carcinoma genetics. And if you're, if you're into that, you should really look at the TracerX um, studies. Uh, one journal of cell in 2018 had three of these papers in it. And I'll give you just kind of some of the, the punchlines here. And you don't need to be a genetic biologist here to understand that as you start at the top of your screen with stage one tumors and you progress to stage three and stage four, we see that genetic diversity and chromosomal complexity describe more aggressive cancers. And so as stage increases, you see more genetic defects and more chromosomal complexity. And where that's really important for us and when we're talking about small renal masses is that small renal masses are actually really uh, described by this VHL monodriver tumor. They're basically um, have VHL gene defects and very few other genetic defects. These were stage one clear cells on average, 45 millimeters in size, 
And if you look at those Kaplan-Meier curves, these are patients who do excellent, where the, uh, especially, especially in this um, study where they were treated. And the authors extrapolated this may be an early evolutionary ancestor of the more complex subtypes, but I'll tell you, we don't know that for certain. This group did a, uh, took it one step further and they said, well, we know the, the VHL gene defect, the translocation of three to five chromosomes typically happens early in childhood or at adolescence, and that that initial clonal expansion can happen from just a few hundred cells. And they traced the data back and they said that a, a clinical T1A clear cell renal cell carcinoma may actually be genetically born anywhere from 15 to 50 years prior to its clinical presentation. So it really speaks not only to the clinical indolence of these tumors, but the genetic indolent behavior and gives us a, kind of a better understanding of where these tumors are coming from and where they're going. We did a very brief study um, at Hopkins. Now, obviously a select group of patients because we watch a lot of small renal masses, but these are patients on average two and a half centimeter tumors who went to the operating room and you see about 90% of them had a, known, a, a mutation in one of the known genes. And what you see is BHL, CET2 drove most of these mutations, but you see a smattering anywhere from 10 to 30% of some of the other known bad genes. And so what we're really trying to piece together and understand is if we look at a small renal mass and then we look at a patient with metastatic disease, are these tumors born bad with bad genes? And then as they progress and get bigger than three centimeters, they then determine a biology that's related to their tumor size. Or do they start off as a three centimeter bland tumor and as they get bigger, they, they acquire bad genetic defects and that's what allows them to metastasize. There's a lot of controversy in the field right now of what the answer is here. My um, personal bias is, is that it's probably, I think it's the first and that they were born with bad genes and these very heterogeneous tumors and that you get to a critical mass when these, when these tumors get bigger, but I really don't have a lot of data to prove that. And I think when we think about clinical heterogeneity, one of the really important things to look at is what are our cancer outcomes? And this was, um, once again, data that supported the AUA guidelines, but if you look at the cancer-specific survival for patients with clinical T1A tumors, whether they had a radical, partial, thermal ablation, or surveillance, the cancer-specific survival was greater than 95%, and in fact, approached 100% in almost every every study, speaking to the real, um, the excellent oncologic outcomes for these tumors in general. And one of the other really important factors of this, not only is it excellent oncologic outcomes, but this is a great SEER paper, um, obviously biases in, in SEER, but this study looks at patients with clinical T1A tumors, whether they were treated with partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy, non-surgical management, which is not really active surveillance, and then stratifies them by age, tumor size, what treatment they had, and even comorbidity index. And what you see is there are certainly patients who die at kidney cancer at higher rates, but no matter what the age is, what the tumor size is, what the underlying comorbidities is, the death from competing causes outweighs the de death uh, from kidney cancer for every tumor size, for every age, for every comorbidity status uh, in all of these patients. And so what are our take home points in the kind of first point of this talk? Well, first, there's a lot of heterogeneity. Biologically, that means benign cancers, low versus high-grade cancers, organ-confined versus invasive tumors. We've already talked about the genetic heterogeneity. Are they born bad or developed? We know that most small tumors are genetically bland, but we can acquire bad genes with increasing stage. And, there's, and that all manifests as clinical heterogeneity. Benign, indolent, and fatal cancers, excellent overall cancer-specific survival, and a high risk of death due to competing causes in this population. And so what does the AUA say about this? 
Basically, you have to talk about tumor biology with your patients. How does their sex, tumor size, histology, how does that all play in? And if you remember this one slide about heterogeneity, you'll remember the tumor biology that you need to talk to, uh, talk to your patients about. And so how do we put these dots together? How do we choose management? Well, the AUA says there are four main management strategies, and I think these are the well-accepted. There are certainly other options out there. But in general, partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy, thermal ablation, and active surveillance. I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing these. I think everybody um, paying attention here knows what the four management strategies are and, and, and the details. But what are the important take-home points? And when I think about partial nephrectomy and, and when I talk to our residents and fellows and trainees, they say, are we doing a partial nephrectomy today or are we doing nephron-sparing surgery? And this actually is manifest in the guidelines, and we didn't realize it when we were writing it this way, but partial nephrectomy is prioritized for healthy patients who have a clinical T1A renal mass. And these are your two centimeter, three centimeter tumors in an otherwise healthy patient. And we just don't go remove their kidney because we know doing a partial nephrectomy offers excellent oncologic outcomes and minimizes their risk of CKD and CKD progression. Whereas a nephron sparing uh, operation is really somebody who has a solitary kidney, what we used to call absolute or relative indications for a partial nephrectomy because they're at risk for developing more tumors or losing their other kidneys or ending up on end-stage renal disease. And so um, you have to kind of know your details and your progression, but in general, partial nephrectomies in my practice, robot partial, straightforward operation, where somebody who's really got progressive CKD and we're worried about nephron sparing, we may open up their flank and put their kidney on ice because there's a lot of data to support that cold ischemia time maybe better than warm, uh, than prolonged warm ischemia time. So you really need to know your practice and your patients, but that's the way I think about partial nephrectomy and, and ne versus nephron sparing. Radical nephrectomy, I think one of the really nice things about the AUA guidelines, and they call this the statement, is this, this is the if and only if statement, when you should be doing radical nephrectomies for T1A tumors, you need to have an increased oncologic potential. So you wanna have uh, at least a larger tumor. In general, you're not gonna be doing this for a one or two centimeter tumor. You have either a biopsy or some kind of imaging characteristic. This could just be the fact that it's a central or hilar tumor. It looks like it's abutting the renal um, hilum that makes it look aggressive or has increased oncologic potential. And you need to meet all of these criteria. High tumor complexity, making partial nephrectomy really challenging. No pre-existing CKD or protein area. They've got a normal kidney on the other side. And the last point is that they have a normal contralateral kidney and you expect their GFR to be greater than 45. And that 45 cutoff is, is really important. I didn't show this, the data in this talk, but Steve Campbell and the group from Cleveland Clinic have brought up this whole concept of surgical versus medical chronic kidney disease. And we know anytime you remove a kidney, you're gonna decrease somebody's GFR. If that GFR is above 45, those patients have a very low likelihood of having progressive CKD and ending up in end-stage renal disease. If it's less than 45, they still have a pretty low risk of ending up in end-stage renal disease, but you will see progressive decline in their GFR higher than you would if they had a higher uh, starting baseline kidney function. What about thermal ablation? What are the take-home points here? Well, there are preferable perioperative outcomes for thermal ablation, and that's really driven by the percutaneous approach. So therefore that should be preferred. Cryoablation and radiofrequency ablation are the most well-studied and published on forms of, of thermal ablation. Obviously, microwave, stereotactic, radiation are all other options for ablation. Not as well studied, not as long of a track record of, of published literature. 
there are excellent long-term outcomes. And the only kind of hiccup in the data is that you will see higher rates of local persistence and higher rates of retrieval and thermal ablation, basically because you're relying on imaging, you may miss or incompletely ablate a tumor. But if you allow for multiple treatments, the oncologic cure rate from a thermal ablation is the same as it is from either a partial or radical nephrectomy. And I think one of the other important considerations is that there's certainly selection in these papers and it requires anatomic selection for the therapy to be successful. In general, you're having small or smaller tumors. Fewer probes you have to put into the tumor, the more likely, likely you are to cure it. In general, they're peripheral uh, on the kidney. And where I think it may actually be beneficial and where I, I tend to use cryoablation in my practice or refer to the interventional radiologist for cryoablation are those small endophytic tumors that you know you're just really gonna struggle with an ultrasound. Our ra interventional radiologists are really excellent at targeting those tumors and doing a good surgery, doing a good treatment for an endophytic tumor. And what about active surveillance? So I put all four guidelines here. NCCN says active surveillance is appropriate for select patients. ASCO says only if they have significant comorbidities and limited life expectancy. The EAU takes the most conservative stance, I think, and says this should only be used in frail and comorbid patients. There's a higher risk of local recurrence and or tumor progression, although I'm not sure data really supports that. And that cure is really required to achieve, uh, surgery is required to achieve cure for localized kidney cancer. I think the AUA takes the most progressive stance here and says that active surveillance can be considered an optional initial, initial management strategy for any patient with a small renal mass less than two centimeters, that's regardless of age and comorbidity status, recognizing that the masses less than two centimeters are much more likely to be benign or indolent than tumors that are larger, and you can extend your criteria for surveillance for larger tumors who have patients who have advanced aging comorbidities. And I think it's a very thoughtful way of approaching this. Here's the active surveillance literature kind of in a nutshell. This was metadata put together by the EAU uh, group. And what you see is on average, slow growing tumors, one to three millimeters a year, low rates of metastatic progression, rates of all other cause mortality vary by the selection criteria of how sick or old the patients were coming into the study and relatively low rates of cancer-specific mortality. But in this country specifically, only 10 to 20% of eligible patients undergo active surveillance based on a number of, of literature sources. So why is that? Well, I'm the first to admit there's definitely an active surveillance dilemma in the literature. There's a lot of selection and reporting bias. You've got a mixture of treated and untreated patients. We may be losing the patients of metastatic disease as they don't follow up. And most of the literature is relatively short. There's no established protocol among studies. We already talked about the heterogeneous biology. And so we know we've got benign and malignant masses in these, in these studies, treated and untreated patients, zero biologic correlates, right? We're really lacking in biomarkers in this disease. And you've got a really high bar to meet. You've got a cancer-specific survival rate greater than 95%, no matter what treatment you choose. So how are you supposed to prove that surveillance is better? Here's some really provocative SEER data, and this is up to 2013, and you see, thankfully, after the 2009 guidelines, and even before, rates of radical nephrectomy for T1A tumors are decreasing dramatically, partial nephrectomy is increasing appropriately, thermal ablation increasing, and you also see increasing in non-surgical management. This is not equated with active surveillance, but gives us a good reference point. We're able to get surgeon-level variation data from SEER Medicare, and what you see over that 10-year period, about 13,000 patients, 3,000 urologists, the, each urologist on average saw about 11 patients, and 60% of those urologists only offered active treatment. Partial, radical, or thermal ablation never offered a non-surgical management to their patients. 
And so if you break that down, you see the variation and it ends up being non-surgical management in about 13% of the SEER Medicare population over this time period. Interestingly, you see tremendous variation among all management strategies, partial, radical, and thermal ablation. And so we started to delve into this and see what helps drive these decisions. And interestingly, here, here are just scatter plots showing each management strategy and the classic things you would think would help you make your decisions for the treatment of small renal masses, age, life expectancy, and tumor size. And if you really delve into this data, interesting, you see, when stratified by age, life expectancy, or tumor size, the greatest predictor in the choice of management was the first urologist that they saw. And so when we think about how we manage cancers, and this is kidney cancer specifically for this talk, but this could be any talk, we think about our tumor factors, and we spent a whole bunch of time talking about that. We think about our patient health factors, and specifically, we focus on renal function for these patients. And then we talk about preferences and values. What are that patient or that family's preferences or values? But importantly, what are our own individual biases? What do we bring to the table? What are we thinking about as a good option or a bad option for our patients? And so I, I, I challenge you to think about your biases when you, when you choose management for your patients in, with small renal masses and outside. And this is a great quote that um, Dr. Carter used to share often when he talked about prostate cancer active surveillance. And in the 90s, prostate cancer active surveillance was challenged big time. And now we would all say active surveillance for the low risk and very low risk man with prostate cancer is standard of care. And I would say we certainly don't consider active surveillance to be standard of care in, uh, for small renal masses. So here's my bias. So we've been running an active surveillance registry now since 2009. Uh, we include only adult patients, as I said, with a solid renal mass. These are not cysts or angiomyolipomas. We've got almost 1,000 patients in the, in the study right now and over 500 on active surveillance when we censored the data last, just about 500 patients there. And you see the median follow remains relatively short, about three years, because we keep adding patients. But we now have about 300 patients who have at least five years of follow-up. And here's kind of the breakdown of the patients and what you see, as you would expect, active surveillance patients in general, about a decade older than patients who choose to go to the operating room. They have more, co more comorbidities by any measure, and they have slightly smaller tumors, closer to about two centimeters versus two and a half centimeters for the patients going to the operating room. Importantly, you see differences in overall survival. Our surgical patients have a better overall survival than our surveillance patients, which really reflects their comorbidities. Importantly, cancer-specific survival is identical. One patient in the surveillance arm has died and that patient probably presented with metastatic disease that was not diagnosed. They died within six months of their presentation. And two patients who underwent surgery died of aggressive uh, kidney cancers, but those rates are really low. And what you see is if you break down the management strategies, you see that the overall survival really selects out for death from competing risks. And you see partial nephrectomies and radical nephrectomies are the patients who have the best short-term survival, while those undergoing thermal ablation and surveillance likely due to comorbidities are the ones with the lowest overall survival. Most importantly, you see that this is really driven by age and comorbidity. It's not the management strategy that is selecting outcome here. So how do we choose the quote unquote correct management option for our patients? So just kind of breaking it down, good to kind of, um, kind of synthesize these things in tabular form. So we know oncologic outcomes really doesn't matter on what management strategy you do. It really depends on that tumor. And for T1 and T1A tumors, we know that cure rate is going to be 90, 95% or better. 
If we think about our approaches and how we select patients, right? Active surveillance is obviously serial imaging. We've got open, minimally invasive and percutaneous approaches. We've got different uh, staging criteria that allow us to select uh, most appropriate management strategies. When we really break it down, we think about kidney function and we know active surveillance, partial nephrectomy and thermal ablation are nephron sparing, excellent preservation of kidney function. When we think about radical nephrectomy, we have the worst drops in EGFR that may not necessarily impact healthy patients, but certainly is notable, not only as decreases in kidney function, but harms and complications. And when we think about surveillance, we worry about how does this impact our patients' anxiety levels, their illness uncertainty. For partial nephrectomy, this is one of the most complex operations we do in urology. We're cutting into an extremely vascular organ. We've got the highest risks of bleeding, urine leaking, and losing an organ in an unexpected fashion. And for thermal ablation, while we have favorable perioperative, we have certainly the most favorable perioperative outcomes, especially for patients who aren't great surgical candidates. So what does the AUA say? Talk to your patients about their urologic and non-urologic morbidities, review their renal functional recovery, because this is really what's going to differentiate outcomes. It's not oncologic outcomes or approach. Those are pretty similar among the um, approaches. So what are the comparative harms? What are those comparative outcomes? Well, it breaks down into renal function, perioperative outcomes and harms, complication rates, and quality of life. And I'll just walk you through, through some of these data. So I think these are important to know. Here's what you need to know for renal functional outcomes. The EORTC trial 3904, 500 patients, five centimeter tumors are smaller. All healthy patients all had two kidneys. Half got partial, half got radical. No difference in kidney cancer deaths. Worse kidney function after radical nephrectomy by EGFR, but the same extremely low rates of kidney failure and end-stage renal disease. So the punchline punch here is, quote-unquote, healthy patients who have two normal kidneys and a normal EGFR will really have identical outcomes after partial nephrectomy and radical nephrectomy. And I think there's two main take-homes from this. First, why are we doing heroic partial nephrectomies in a healthy patient? And I think the one caveat to oncologic outcomes for partial nephrectomy is you need to have a clear margin, you need to completely excise that tumor, and you need to not put the patient at risk. So if you've got a complex tumor in a patient with a normal GFR and a normal contralateral kidney, we may, not, we may have less of a role for doing those really challenging partial nephrectomies, or at least less data to support that. That's not true for comorbid patients and those with pre-existing CKD, we certainly may want to be pushing the envelope of partial nephrectomy or nephron sparing, as we said before, in those patients. What about perioperative outcomes and, uh, and harms? Well, thermal ablation has the most favorable perioperative outcomes and harms. Obviously, if you compare it to radical nephrectomy and partial nephrectomy, you're going to see uh, differences in, in kind of the perioperative setting. One of the big differentiators is blood transfusions, obviously highest for partial nephrectomy. You're cutting into a kidney where radical nephrectomies and thermal ablation are pretty much bloodless operations and patients do very well, especially for T1A tumors. If you look at the complication rates, here's a very interesting point. Minor and major complication rates are actually similar or very close to identical for partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy, and thermal ablation, but the specific complications vary. Radical nephrectomy is associated with acute kidney injury and non-urologic complications, which probably speaks to selection in those patients. Partial nephrectomy has the highest rates of urologic complications, right? You're cutting into the kidney and you're going to deal with all the sequelae of that, whether that's uh, uh, injuries or bleeding. And lastly, thermal ablation has higher rates of infectious disease and wound complications. Once again, probably speaking to the population that is selected for those options. And lastly, in quality of life, not a lot of data here. Only four studies that look at comparative health between radical and partial. 
Radical nephrectomy may provide better quality of life regarding cancer control, meaning patients may feel more confident in the oncologic outcomes, although we know that that doesn't really make a, a difference. Um, and partial nephrectomy may offer decreased anxiety and depression in patients who understand that you're keeping nephrons and preserving kidney function around. So uh, a question just came through um, um, about kidney function and, and evaluating it preoperatively. I didn't put this AUA statement in there, but it's actually very clear how you do this. You check a serum creatinine and you check a urine analysis. Serum creatinine will allow you to calculate an estimated GFR. Urine analysis is for proteinuria. If you have protein on your dipstick, you need to get a more quantitative urine analysis for proteinuria. If you look at the KDIGO criteria or our nephrologist kind of guidelines for, for classifying chronic kidney disease, significant um, significant degrees of proteinuria will actually bump patients into a worse chronic kidney disease category than their EGFR may, uh, may indicate. So that's your screening test, serum creatinine, urine analysis, look for protein. If you're, um, the guidelines go over this in depth. If you're ever unsure, contact your nephrologist. Um, most of the time there's not much they can do, but they certainly can evaluate patients for, the for chronic kidney disease and their risk of chronic kidney disease moving forward. No role, in my opinion, for routine MAG-3 or kind of functional assessments, but, uh, but that's kind of my, my two cents there. So, so can you also real quick speak to how you estimate uh, the post-operative GFR yeah. um, based on the you know, surgical plan? Yeah, I think um, once again, you really need to look at what, where that patient's baseline is and where they're starting and recognizing that if you're doing a radical nephrectomy, you're gonna decrease their GFR, or at least theoretically, you're gonna remove 50% of their nephrons. You're gonna see some rebound in, in kidney function over the next one to 12 months. So estimate roughly a 30% decrease in GFR. That'll give you kind of a, a post-op for a radical nephrectomy. Based on the partial, partial nephrectomy is a little different. You don't really expect to see too much GFR change unless you're dealing with really large central or hyalur tumors. So you really shouldn't see much of a change in GFR after a good partial nephrectomy. Most of the time, you're not removing functional nephrons. You're really just removing kidney mass or kidney cancer. You may see a small change. I usually estimate 10% or less. You usually don't see that big of a difference. I hope that answered it, Meredith. And I would tell you, there's not a lot of great data to, to guide that. So. Um, so how do we make the right choice for our patients then? Well, it brings us back to our stones and, and kind of how we think about this, right? Tumor factors, patient factors, preferences, values. Some patients certainly value renal function over oncologic outcomes. Many patients value oncologic outcomes over kidney function. And we need to take these things into consideration as well as our biases. So I'm going to run you through three patients that I think make this kind of clear. Here's a 79-year-old gentleman with a 1.4 centimeter mass. His medical and surgical history is pretty extensive quite a few medications. Here's this kidney mass. You see it on the left kidney on the right side of your screen, small mass above a renal cyst. I think this is a no brainer for, for surveillance in this uh, comorbid patient. And what you see is this patient did great for about five years, 1.4 centimeter tumor finished at about 2.0 centimeters. And unfortunately this, this gentleman died of a myocardial infarction at 84 years old. Not unexpected given where we were at the beginning. Here's one that's slightly more challenging, not really a small renal mass, but I think brings in the, the importance of preferences and values. This is an 86-year-old veteran, 6.7 centimeter renal mass diagnosed during a workup for gross hematuria and had a renal vein thrombus. 
Once again, pretty extensive medical history here. Biopsy proven clear cell renal cell cancer, low grade. And here's just the MRI and you'll see the mass on the left side. You'll see a relatively limited thrombus, only uh, level uh, kind of poking in just to the, the renal vein, nowhere near the vena cava. He's not a candidate for systemic therapy given his comorbidities. He had a strong preference for surgical intervention, was evaluated by anesthesia and was deemed high risk, but optimized and safe to go to the operating room. You do a robot radical nephrectomy in less than 90 minutes, lose less than 100 cc's of blood, knock it out of the park. Two hours later in the ICU under monitoring, aspirates reintubated and dies. That's not a good outcome, even though that patient had a strong preference for surgical intervention. And, um, and that's really where we have to kind of rank these things and think about them. And the last patient I'll put here is a, a four centimeter mass evaluated initially four years ago relatively um, um, moderate medical history for a 79 year old man, wanted to undergo active surveillance. So we put him in our disarm or our surveillance program. And here's what his tumor did over the course of two to three years. It started at just under three centimeters and it really got close to four centimeters. We plugged him into our algorithms. We gave him the numbers. We told him he's got about a 50% chance of having a potentially aggressive kidney cancer as defined by either a high grade or a T3 up staging although less than 1% chance of dying of kidney cancer and he chooses to go to the operating room. Here's the, uh, here's the once again, his MRI and you'll see the mass on the periphery of the right kidney, relatively straightforward, not really central or hilar. This looks like a relatively straightforward partial nephrectomy, should be in and out of the operating room, patient should do well. But you do a robot partial nephrectomy, 100 minutes in the OR, 30 cc's of blood loss, you get to the recovery room and all of a sudden there's bright red blood in the catheter. And here's your embolization study. You see an artery opened up and it was in direct continuity with the collecting system. It's a, a pretty cool embolization, but these aren't without, these aren't trivial at all. And this was, we would have predicted to be a straightforward partial nephrectomy and it ended up not being such. And so it ended up being a 3.8 centimeter oncocytoma after he got two units of blood and an emergent angioembolization. So how do we Choose our management strategies. What are my take-home points here? So whether you're choosing partial radical ablation or surveillance, oncologic outcomes are identical and excellent. Overall survival is determined by their death from competing causes. Think about the comparative harms. Renal function obviously favors nephron sparing. Few patients undergoing radical nephrectomy result in dialysis as long as they are healthy going in. The heroic partial is probably unnecessary in somebody with a, with healthy, uh, who is healthy and has two kidneys. And if we think about complication rates, they're similar, but they certainly vary by modality. The most notable ones for partial nephrectomy, bleeding, urine leak, or unplanned loss of that kidney. So we've come up with some tools to kind of help our, our patients. This is a video on YouTube. You're more than welcome to access it. Uh, I won't show it to you here. And the second is we've come up with this active care app, which we're looking to expand out of Johns Hopkins, but for a patient who's in our surveillance program, as I showed you before, they can access their own tumor data in our program, not only follow it a long time compared to the, the shaded areas, everybody else in the study, um, but importantly, they can look at their predicted outcomes when we come and see them. What's your chance of having a benign tumor? What's your chance of having an indolent cancer? What's your chance of having a potentially aggressive cancer? But most importantly, what's your risk of dying of kidney cancer within the next five years based on actuarial data from our program? So these are just a, a, another patient in case the video didn't work, but I'll skip through that. And so in the last few minutes here, I wanna give you kind of a kind of view up. Where are we looking in active surveillance now? 
How do all the principles of management we just talked about help us understand active surveillance and where we're going? So here's, here's kind of how we do, excuse me, imaging in our, in our program. Initially, we image patients every six months for about two years. If their mass shows stability, we will extend it up to annual imaging if they're comfortable with that. If they are initially diagnosed with an ultrasound, we, we require axial imaging within six months of diagnosis. It doesn't have to happen immediately, especially if they've got a sub two centimeter mass. We no longer require annual chest imaging. That's a whole nother story, but basically I've already told you the rates of metastatic disease are so low, we don't require uh, chest imaging every year. And we check their kidney function. We already said what an important step that is in choosing management. Every time we get an image, or at least once a year, we're checking their kidney function as that can certainly help us make a decision on how we're gonna manage them moving forward. We've moved to ultrasound as our perverse surveillance modality. It's cheap, it's easy. When your radiologists know what they're looking for, they know that patient has an existing mass. It's usually pretty easy to find and measure. Although we do tell all of our patients we have a protocol, all of our, all of our patients can have individualized care. You certainly can vary your time intervals based on that patient or that tumor. And we definitely alternate axial imaging when we can. Uh, that way we're keeping an entire look at their abdomen and kind of you gain different information from each imaging modality. So here's kind of the spider plots for our program. What you see is about a millimeter of growth per year in the program. Here is the waterfall plot. And what you see 20% of patients actually have quote unquote shrinking tumors. About 10% have zero growth. 65% are slow growing, leaving only about 20% that will grow at an elevated growth rate, half a centimeter per year that makes us nervous. Interestingly, if you look at kind of the variation in growth rates, what you see is a funneling over time. Growth rates decrease in magnitude, as does the variation or the standard deviation as you get out from, from time. And what we found interestingly is it's actually, you think maybe these are patients we're taking to the operating room. We've done a number of sensitivity analyses to prove that it's not patients crossing over that change this. This is really what we think uh, may actually be lead to um, mathematical artifact and variations in measurement. And I'll walk you through a, a brief exercise here to help you understand that. So let's just assume we have a spherical tumor. It measures at three centimeters across. Let's say on the same day, we measure it tangentially or we measure it uh, across a different angle. And all of a sudden we've got a very small change, millimeter change in size, but now we extrapolate, extrapolate that over a short time interval. And now you've got an elevated growth rate. And if you just follow that out a little bit longer and you see variations in measurement, it will even out that variation and you'll actually have a slow growth rate in most of these tumors. So when we see that elevated growth rate in the first year, we avoid intervention. We consider re-imaging at shorter intervals and we'll talk to our patients about biopsy. I think biopsy is a really important point in, in how we manage small renal masses. So initially, when we started the program, we biopsied 5% of our patients. Now we biopsy about 15% of our patients. And you can see half of our patients that move from surveillance to crossover are getting a biopsy. We're trying to use biopsy to help us make decisions. So what do we know about biopsy? First of all, it's safe. The risk of complications are really low. 5% of patients have a hematoma. Only 1% will require blood transfusion. Tumor seeding does not occur. It is really case reportable. And should we, we should not be scaring patients away from biopsy with modern techniques. It could be performed in a variety of clinical settings. Radiologists do it, interventional radiologists do it. We're actually doing them now under ultrasound guidance in clinic. This can be done under local or general anesthesia, as I said, in a clinic or outpatient setting. 
Here's the systematic review data that supports biopsy, right? Excellent positive performance characteristics. If you stick a needle in a mast and you get cancer back, you've got kidney cancer. Why don't we use it on everybody? Well, we've got a significant non-diagnostic rate of about 15%, and you've got a negative predictive value upwards of about 70%, meaning at its worst, 30% of patients who have a benign biopsy actually have cancer. Obviously, some biased literature here. Every patient uh, who had a benign biopsy went to the operating room because a smart urologist decided that they had something that looked fishy there and they didn't trust the biopsy but it could be as high as 30% of patients with a benign biopsy have cancer. And most importantly, biopsy is really poor at predicting or picking out high-grade cancers. At best, it's a flip of a coin to pick out the high-grade tumors. Why? Well, here's a really simple study. This was 32 consecutive patients, low-grade on the right, high-grade on the left. And what you see is the majority of high-grade tumors were actually low-grade cancer. And what's really scary is the only patient who died of kidney cancer was this patient here, who had a 5% sarcomatoid component and is actually one of the disarmed patients in the intervention arm who died of metastatic kidney cancer. So what are my personal recommendations? Renal mass biopsy is not a requisite for safe active surveillance. It's certainly useful in growing small renal masses. Anytime you're not certain about risk stratification, there's a patient characteristic, you're not sure um, uh, if that tumor is um, amenable to a radical or a partial? Should that patient go to the operating room or stay out of it? Sometimes a biopsy will give you a little bit of information to push you over the edge. And in certain patients, knowing what they have can alleviate some disease-related anxiety and depression. Um, I didn't show you that data, but there is data to support that. So what's the AUA say? Biopsy if you think this is not kidney cancer. It's not required if it's not going to change management and you should discuss the rationale and the performance characteristics, meaning if we get a positive, we know we have cancer, but if it's a negative, are we gonna rely on that to make our decisions? And that's uh, what you'll get tested on as well. So the last thing I wanna talk about briefly is just progression. What does it mean to progress on surveillance? Well, when we started the program 10 years ago, we said if their tumors grew more than four centimeters, if they had fast growth rates, if they developed hematuria, or if they elected to cross over, we were gonna call that progression. Interestingly, using those definitions, 40% of patients will experience progression at seven years, but less than 1% of them will die of kidney cancer. So it made us really think, what is progression? And if you look, the majority of progression events are patients who cross over or go to the operating room. A third of the progression events are actually are elevated growth rates, but those patients decide not to go to the operating room. And half of the clinically indicated crossovers are just because the patient no longer wanted to be on surveillance or they had a health condition that improved, but they didn't have an elevated growth rate. And so it really made us think about what does progression mean? Here's another study from the Fox Chase Group. Once again, leaders in active surveillance with Dr. Uzo and Alex Kudikoff. Their waterfall plot looks remarkably similar to ours. About uh, 10 to 20% uh, have a growth rate above five uh, millimeters per year. And interestingly, delayed intervention, the blue bars are more common with an elevated growth rate. And if you look at their cumulative insulin incidence of delayed intervention, it's 40% at five years going to the operating room, particularly if they have an elevated growth rate. But very similar data to ours, only 1%, one patient died of kidney cancer. And so it makes us think growth rate really predicts intervention, but it's not impacting our oncologic outcomes. And so we dove into our data. Here's our delayed intervention cohort. Patients crossing over at about a year, they had elevated growth rates compared to um, patients who went to the operating room primarily. Most, many of the interventions were because of patient preference. 
very low rate of radical nephrectomy, so we weren't losing our nephron-sparing windows. And if you look at the histology, there was no difference in kidney cancer, high-grade disease, or T3 upstaging based on growth rate alone. And so we've concluded that delayed intervention is safe. It doesn't compromise stage, oncologic outcomes, or your nephron-sparing window. And interestingly, we know the crossover rate is highest if you start with a mass that's greater than three centimeters, likely because they get to four centimeters quicker than other patients. But still 70% of those patients are remaining intervention free. One of the other big criticisms is that you can't do surveillance in young patients. Well, here's all the patients under 60. And yeah, patients with bigger tumors who are under 60 have a slightly higher rate of crossover, but still two thirds of those patients are staying out of the operating room five years after, uh, after enrollment in the program. So how, how, what are our take home points here? We use ultrasound as our mainstay uh, modality of active surveillance. We are alternated with axial imaging and we don't use routine chest imaging. Most small renal masses grow slowly or not at all. Growth rate is highly variable within the first year and predicts intervention, but not really any oncologic outcomes. And delayed intervention is safe without compromise of pathologic, oncologic, or nephron sparing outcomes. And so if I had a week to talk to you about small renal masses, this is some of the topics of intrigue um, that I didn't cover today. But if you have questions about them, I'm happy to talk about post-treatment surveillance protocols, uh, redefining uh, or refining active surveillance protocols. Should we be doing this based on sex or histology, on biopsy, biomarkers, quality of life, how we think about bio other biology, including kind of VEGF status, Cystic renal masses is a completely different talk and a very uh, interesting kind of nuanced topic. How should we manage oncocytomas and AMLs? What about T1B tumors? Should we be doing partials in those routinely? Should, or should they all go to radical nephrectomy? Is it safe to do active surveillance? And other uh, ablative therapies like Sabre, happy to talk about any of those. And uh, that's it. So um, they ask us to put up this slide. Um, uh, the Q&A is open. Please feel free to type in any questions. We will answer them um, uh, here. So it looks like there's one uh, question in the chat about whether you use any standard nomograms for predicting life expectancy, since the idea of competing risks is such an important part of management decision. Um, then I also would just add if you could talk a little bit about how you discuss this idea of competing risks or life expectancy with your patients. Yeah. So to, to be honest, I talk to patients a lot about this, been doing it for over 10 years. It's still really hard to talk to patients about life expectancy. So the easiest way I do it and the calculation I use for myself is um, basically social security uh, life expectancy tables. So on average, 84 to 86 years old for men and women in the U.S. And then I kind of try and estimate our, what quartile of health are they in. And if they're in the best quartile of health, they're going to live on average about, about five years longer than that. If they're in the worst quartile of health, probably less than that. Um, and so that's my self-assessment of it. One of the other things we found uh, very useful it's more academically, but you can really apply this in your mind, is there's the SF12 uh, quality of life questionnaire has physical component scores. And if you ask a patient a single question, can, you know, the one about, can you uh, push a vacuum cleaner, go bowling, play golf, anything like that? And they say, no, they're in the worst quartile of that question. They've got a 50% five-year mortality from other causes in the kidney cancer population. So, 
that's a really strong predictor too. So if someone comes in and with tough, um, they're not mobile or they've got uh, issues with that, that's also a really strong predictor of other cause mortality within five years. And instead of couching it for, for uh, in terms of their life expectancy, I really try and couch it in terms of what is their risk of dying of kidney cancer? And so the numbers I give them, two centimeters or less, less than 1% chance of dying of kidney cancer. Two to three centimeters, it's somewhere in the range of one to 2%. Once you get to four centimeters and higher, your risk of dying of kidney cancer starts becoming, in my mind, real. You start talking about five to 10% risk of metastatic kidney cancer or higher. And those are the numbers I used to discuss with patients. And so if you see a patient in a wheelchair who's really sick and has got a number of medical issues, five to 10% may not sound that bad actually. And so those are the numbers I use to start the conversation uh, there. So I hope that makes sense. That was a little long-winded. And um, another question here is about looking at growth rate or size estimates. Um, I think particularly as it pertains to surveillance populations, uh, and whether 3D volumetric growth or, uh, or size criteria may replace a two-dimensional measurement moving forward in terms of cutoffs um, for surveillance. Yeah, uh, you could probably answer this one. You and I have had this conversation many times. Um, you know, 3D measurements are probably a better assessment of tumor biology and tumor growth if you get down to kind of the, the truth uh, uh, of cancer biology. The problem is even our best CT scanners, MRIs, ultrasounds have, have uh, errors associated with them. And I showed you how you can get volumetric differences with just a one to, one to two millimeter change in measurement or variation in measurement. And now all of a sudden you compound that over three dimensions. And what you end up seeing is huge variations in volume where it becomes not only difficult to calculate, but even more difficult to interpret. So we've always just used greatest uh, linear dimension. It can be any of the dimensions, but we use greatest linear dimension as our best assessment of kind of overall tumor size. And I think that practically and clinically ends up uh, being the easiest one to use. And what about the role of uh, imaging with SESTA-MEB scans and that, that uh, place in the algorithm and whether uh, you think in the future that will be incorporated into guidelines anymore? Yeah, I think the biggest advances in, in small renal masses are going to be in biomarkers and molecular imaging. And Sestamibi is the easiest one. I think the, the one that's best right now, and I mean, the, the humor of it, it's a 40-year-old radio, tra radio tracer that was used for thyroid and cardiac imaging. But because it picks up high mitochondrial content, oncocytomas light up like light bulbs. There's a little bit of a learning curve for the nuclear medicine departments, but once you kind of go over it and get it down, it is a wonderful test for diagnosing patients with benign tumors or the most common benign tumors. We don't use it in everybody, um, but when we have suspicion of an oncocytoma, meaning we see a central scar, or it's a patient where um, kind of uncertain of the indications for the operating room or once again, having a tough time deciding partial versus radical nephrectomy, we all feel a lot more comfortable removing an entire kidney if we know it's a cancer as opposed to a benign mass. So we tend to use Sestamibi ahead of biopsy. It's non-invasive, it's cheap, it's easy to interpret now for our radiologists because we have hundreds of patients in our experience. So we tend to use that ahead of biopsy, 
We still prefer to confirm the Sestamibi findings with the needle biopsy, but you get a much better sensitivity and specificity. You can make the argument to do it in opposite order, do a needle mass biopsy and then confirm the oncocytic neoplasms with the Sestamibi. But, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the way we use it now. Similar indications to biopsy, when you're having a tough time making up your mind or you need better risk stratification or a patient wants a better answer or there's kind of, you know, radiographic stigmata of an oncocytoma, great time to use it. Um, we just had a really interesting meeting today in one of our kidney cancer research meetings about other forms of molecular imaging and, and CA9 molecules may make their way back onto the scene. Uh, there's a whole thing. PSMA imaging actually lights up clear cell renal cell cancers really well. So I think molecular imaging can make a big impact here in the future. Do you think Sestamibi scans uh, would make you more comfortable watching a potentially a fast-growing tumor on surveillance um, yeah. if the Sestamibi scan is positive? Yeah, this is, um, this is an area of open debate, I would put politely. So um, we feel very comfortable watching large oncocytomas. And the way we talk to patients about it is the standard of care in most places around the world would be to surgically remove any large renal mass, whether it's an oncocytoma or not. And there's, a, there's some literature to indicate that growing or large oncocytomas can actually destroy normal renal parenchyma and decrease GFR over time. I don't really believe that literature. I, that's not been our experience. And I think there's a lot of bias in the literature that reported those outcomes. It's still provocative and it still warrants kind of more investigation. Uh, and I would say the jury is certainly out and, and with stronger data, I certainly could be swayed to, to believe that. But based on competing risks, we will certainly watch large oncocytomas trying to learn, is it gonna impair this patient's renal function? Is it gonna have any adverse outcomes? And in our experience, it doesn't. You watch them and they grow or they can grow. Uh, but if it's a benign mass, it's a benign mass and it's not gonna cause metastatic disease or kill anyone. And until there's you know, an adverse health outcome, uh, we're really hesitant to go to the operating room for benign masses. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.